Story 5 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Losacco. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock. Story 5 The Piper of Culloden. On a bold promontory, whose base was laved by the waters of the German Ocean, stood Drumsley Castle. It was a plain, rambling, solid building, of a nondescript style of architecture, and yet not out of keeping with the situation in which it was placed. Inland was a semicircular sweep of hills, rugged and barren in parts, in others clothed with dense pine forests, that seemed to be the abiding places of the spirits of gloom. Between the base of these hills and the castle was a wild stretch of moorland, over which the seabirds wheeled in darkening flight, filling the air with their plaintive cries. It was a solitary place in summer, when the broad beams of the sun flung a golden light over the sepia-toned landscape. The drowsy hum of bees, the lowing of kine, the rustling of the marsh sedges, or the cry of birds were about the only sounds one heard. Occasionally, a dust-stained pedestrian toiled his way amongst the scrunty heather coming from the hills to the sea, or vice versa, or a ragged but picturesque shepherd roamed in dreamy indolence with his browsing flocks. Otherwise, all was solitude, a solitude that seemed to lie far, far beyond the fret of the passionate world. But it was also a meeting place for the wanton airs of heaven, and when the storm wind came across the German Ocean and swept the moorland, it was then a region of desolation, a fitting haunt for things weird and uncanny, and a fostering school for the wild stories and legends current in the district. Drumsley Castle was hoary with time, for it was built in a far-off age, and had had a strange and checkered career. But soon after the fatal fight of Culloden, it passed into the possession of the family of Linning, for services rendered to the English government under the Duke of Cumberland. In connection with the castle was a considerable rent-roll derived from property in and about the town, which nestled in a deep depression that sloped down to the sea two miles away. This town was a thriving, busy place, but, owing to its situation in a hollow, it was entirely hidden from the moorland, a thin veil of smoke alone indicating its presence to the traveller over the moor. A well-kept road that was carried along the edge of the cliffs connected the town and the castle, which, at the time we are writing of, was in possession of Sir Archibald Linning, a lineal descendant of the Sir John Linning, who had fought under Cumberland at Culloden. Sir Archibald was not an old man. Indeed, he was some years under fifty, but he was grizzled and careworn, with a look of pained anxiety in his face. He had married somewhat early in life, and his lady had borne him a goodly number of sons and daughters but he had seen them taken from him, one by one, nearly all by violent, mysterious, or sudden death. 
for a curse rested upon the house of Linning. Now we find Sir Archibald old before his time, and a widower with only one daughter, Jessie. The Linnings had ever been noted for their beauty. Tradition had it that an ugly woman or a misshapen man had never been known in the family, and certainly, as far as Jessie was concerned, this tradition appeared to receive verification. Cast in a mold that might without exaggeration be called perfection, and with a face full of that feminine softness and sweetness beloved of the old painters, she was a woman who would have tempted good St. Anthony himself to his fall, and allied to this physical perfection was a gentleness of disposition and a generous nature, open, frank, and honest. She had, from her earliest years, enjoyed the best of health, for the Linnings were famed for robustness no less than beauty, and now, having reached the age of twenty-three, it appeared as if she was destined to long life and to become the founder of a new branch of the Linning family. On her, indeed, her father had set his last earthly hopes. To her, he looked to perpetuate his race and he had prayed with an earnestness begotten of wild despair that heaven would spare this girl, and that the curse which had all but annihilated his people might now end. For a considerable time, she had been residing with some distant relatives in London, and while there had been introduced to Roland Staffler, himself a doctor, and second son of the world-renowned surgeon, Sir Joseph Staffler, Almost at the first time of seeing each other, they fell in love, and in every way they seemed singularly fitted to journey together through life. When Sir Archibald heard of the love-making, he was truly glad, for though he had no personal acquaintance at that time with the Stafflers, he knew they were people beyond reproach, and no less renowned for their chivalry and honor than for their cleverness. Great was his joy, therefore, at the prospect of a union between his house and the Stafflers, as by it he hoped that his own house would be saved. For six months the course of the wooing ran on smoothly and happily, and at last Jessie returned to her home to make preparations for her marriage. Up to this period Sir Archibald had not seen his future son-in-law, but it was arranged that before the summer had waned Roland was to visit Drumsley Castle, and be Sir Archibald's guest for at least a couple of months. Professional duties, however, kept the young doctor from fulfilling his engagement until the summer had passed, and he arrived at Drumsley one somber afternoon towards the end of October. Had he been by nature prone to receive gloomy impressions from external objects, he could not have failed to be affected as he drove up to the ancient castle, for turn which way the eye would, there was not an atom of color to relieve the monotint of gray. The gray sea blended with the gray sky, and the gray moorland lost itself in the gray mist-swept hills beyond. The only thing that did tend to break the monotony of tone was the bog cotton, which flashed out in white patches here and there on the moor. From somewhere out of the misty distance came the mournful bleat of a sheep now and then, and this was varied by the bay of the heathcock or the lonely hue of a plover. 
the infinite dolefulness of the scene was accentuated by the leaden sky that seemed to spread over the vast land and seascape like a funeral pall. From the sea itself came a sullen boom as it rose and fell with rhythmical monotony against the iron cliffs. Sir Archibald met the doctor in the entrance hall and taking both his hands gave him a warm welcome, saying with a smile that had something of the sadness of the external landscape in it, Right glad I am to see you, and I give you a treble welcome as my hope-for son. I trust that you may bring joy and peace and happiness to my house. I hope so, sir, answered the doctor with a hearty laugh, as I shall take peace and joy and happiness from it. The latter part of this answer, as will be readily seen, was capable of being contorted into a meaning totally different to that intended by the speaker, and some such interpretation as this must have occurred to Sir Archibald, for he raised his shoulders with a shudder and said mournfully, Heaven forbid that you should take joy and happiness from my desolated home. Then, as if suddenly remembering himself, he laughed and added quickly, But come, I must not talk like this now. Jesse is eager to see you, and the servant will at once conduct you to your apartment, so that you may change your traveling dress, by which time dinner will be served. The doctor failed to notice in his host's face the settled gloom which was there. He was too full of thoughts of his lady love, and hastened to his room with a light heart. The days sped merrily with the young couple, who were too much absorbed in each other to interest themselves in anything else. Jessie, of course, was not ignorant of the curse which was said to rest upon her house, nor that she was the last prop of that house. But the prospect of joy in the near future caused her for the time to forget the sorrow and the pain of the past. Not so her father. He could not conceal his anxiety, lest even at the eleventh hour his newborn hopes should be blighted, as they had ever been blighted throughout his life. But as day after day went by, and he watched his daughter and her affianced husband, as he saw how infinitely tender he was to her, and how she, with all her woman's nature, adored him, he began to think that at last the sorrow had ended. But alas, this elusive dream was to be of short duration. It chanced one evening that he and Dr. Staffler were seated together in the library, Jessie being engaged in superintending preparations for a party on the following day. A number of friends and acquaintances having been invited to meet the doctor. It had been a singularly sullen day, and the sea boomed with angry menace, while the wind had moaned dismally over the moorland. As the darkness gathered, there was a wild streak of blood-red light in the west, where the heavy clouds were banked up over the hills. Sir Archibald had predicted a stormy night, and with the deepening gloom the boom of the sea grew hoarser, and great splashes of rain were driven against the windows. The library, however, was cheerful enough. A sea-coal fire blazed brightly, and its ruddy gleams warmed the dark oak of the paneling, and added color to the bindings of the many volumes in the well-filled bookcases. The windows, which faced seaward, were screened with massive crimson velvet curtains, 
and a heavy dark red pile carpet covered the floor. Outside, the storm had gathered in fury, and blowing in from the ocean, the wind brought squalls of hail and rain that beat with extraordinary force against the window. But Sir Archibald was unusually cheerful, for he and the doctor had been discussing the approaching marriage and settling certain weighty matters indispensable to the union of two important families. There had come a lull in the conversation when suddenly the doctor started up in an attitude of listening. "'What is it?' asked his host quickly as he noticed this. "'Well, I could almost have sworn that I heard the sound of bagpipes swelling and dying down on the wind.' With a cry that was a wail of abject despair, Sir Archibald sank back in his chair. His chin fell on his breast, and his face assumed a hue that was literally ashen in its tone. Thinking that he had been seized with a fit of apoplexy, the doctor sprang to him, grasped his wrist to feel the pulse, and in a voice of anxiety asked him what was the matter. "'The bagpipes! The bagpipes!' gasped Sir Archibald whilst his eyes had a wild, staring expression in them. "'But surely the sound of bagpipes needn't disturb you like this,' the doctor remarked, naturally greatly surprised. "'It's the Piper of Culloden,' gasped Sir Archibald hoarsely. "'Well, really, sir, this requires some explanation,' said the doctor, with a puzzled air. "'You shall have it! You shall have it!' groaned the afflicted man, as he covered his face with his hands, and shuddered visibly. But go to your seat, go to your seat. Dr. Staffler went back to his chair, and for some minutes there was silence in the room, and then could be heard, coming and going with the wind, the sound of bagpipes, now wailing plaintively, now swelling to a warlike pibroch, and anon scrocking fiercely, and yet there was something unnatural in the sounds. It is difficult to say in what way this made itself manifest, but that it did so was proved by the doctor saying rather to himself than as if by speaking to his companion, There is something awfully weird about that music. My God, yes! exclaimed Sir Archibald, clasping his hands in an agony of despair. Awfully weird, because it means death to a member of my house. The doctor looked incredulous, and even smiled, for he was utterly without superstition. Surely, he remarked, such an idea as that is unworthy a man of your intelligence. A laugh of fear escaped from the white lips of Sir Archibald, as he replied, You will not say that when I have told you the meaning of those awful sounds. Then he suddenly sprang from his seat, and seizing the doctor's hand, almost roughly he exclaimed, come here, at the same time drawing him towards an anteroom and lifting a lamp from the table. The door of the anteroom was screened by a curtain, and letting go the doctor's hand, he pulled this curtain on one side and entered. He raised the lamp above his head so that its rays fell full on the portrait of a soldier in costume of the early part of the seventeenth century. That man, he said fiercely, was an ancestor of mine. He was a captain under the Duke of Cumberland and fought at Culloden. It was through him that this curse came upon our house. 
He uttered a groan as he said this, and passed hurriedly out of the room again, as if the sight of the portrait was hateful to him. Once more he threw himself into his chair, and covering his face, groaned in anguish. The doctor, who had followed him, began seriously to think that his host was not in his right mind, and he said persuasively, Perhaps I had better summon some of the servants who will assist you to your bedroom, where I will visit you, and if you will permit me, I will prescribe something that will have the effect of soothing your nerves. Sir Archibald looked up. His face was haggard and ghastly. His eyes were expressive of intense mental distress, and when he spoke, his voice was hoarse as a raven's. Keep your seat, he said. You are wrong in your diagnosis. For me, those dreadful sounds which you yourself have heard are fraught with an awful meaning, and it is only right that I, as a man of honor, should tell you what that meaning is. You see me a desolate old man, old before my time. One by one, my beloved children have been taken from me in the prime and flush of life, and not from fell disease, but while apparently in vigorous health and always before the death of one of my children, the sounds of those awful pipes have been heard. The doctor himself grew a little pale at these words in spite of himself, for, if they were not the mere ravings of a mind distraught, they meant that his bride-elect was doomed. It was a dreadful thought, and then, as if ashamed and even angry with himself, he laughed a scornful little laugh, and ejaculated the one word, Absurd! You are skeptical, said Sir Archibald in the same hollow tone. But heaven pity us. It is too true, too true. My ancestor, whose portrait you have just looked upon, was a soldier of great bravery, but a fierce and passionate man. It is said that in his passion he was capable of almost any cruelty. On that fatal day of Culloden, he held a commission in Monroe's regiment and it is stated that he fought with lion-like bravery. When the dreadful charge of the wild, rushing Highlanders was over, when all that despair and devotion could do for the misguided Prince Charlie was seen to be of no avail, his beaten remnant of an army began to fall back sullenly, though even as they retired they contested the ground inch by inch, and in many cases pouring out their lifeblood rather than own defeat. My ancestor was one of the most active and determined in following up the slowly retreating Highlandmen, and all reports concur in saying that he was relentless to those who would not readily yield. On one part of the field lay a wounded piper. One of his legs had been shattered by a cannonball, so that he was helpless. His pipes were beside him, and he was stretched on his back, writhing with pain. A little group of his ragged countrymen were slowly falling back before a superior number of the English, who were led by my ancestor. Suddenly the dying piper rose, and seizing his instrument, he blew a wild war strain to encourage his kin against the hated foe. The sound of the pipes so inspirited the flying column that they suddenly turned with savage fury on their pursuers, and for some minutes a bloody hand-to-hand -hand encounter ensued, and many an Englishman bit the dust. 
Cease that cursed row, roared my ancestor to the wounded piper. But the man, all unheeding, played louder and more fiercely. Such an unequal struggle could not last long, for the Englishmen outnumbered the Scots two to one. At last the remnant of the latter turned and fled. Then, wild with passion, as he saw how many of his men had fallen in that short scrimmage that had been brought about by the pibroch of the wounded piper, my ancestor rushed upon him, and crying out, Thou accursed fool! he plunged his sword through the man's body. But the Highlander was not killed outright, and raising himself on his elbow as the blood gushed in a stream from his wound, he retorted, Accursed be thou and all thy tribe to the fourth generation. Thy descendants shall die in their shoes, and while the bloom of youth and health is upon them. My pipes shall announce their doom, and whenever the pibroch sounds in their ears, death shall be stretching his hands towards them. Again I say, accursed, thrice accursed, be thou and thine and thy descendants to the fourth generation. In his fierce wrath, the piper almost sprang to his feet, and, as if to emphasize his dying hatred, he spat in my ancestor's face, and then blew a wild skirl on his pipes. But it was his last act, for the next moment he was brained, and fell back dead, and then my ancestor hacked the offending pipes to pieces with his sword. Such, then, is the story, and the curse of the dying piper has been too literally fulfilled. I have heard that unearthly music often, and whenever I have heard it, I have seen one of my loved ones taken from me. Sir Archibald had told this strange story in a quick, jerky, nervous way. His eyes depicted terror, and his face was like the face of a corpse. Dr. Staffler was naturally much affected, although he did not attach any serious importance to what he had heard. Or rather, it should be said, he tried not to do so, but in spite of himself, an uneasy feeling forced itself upon him. There was no mistake about his having heard the pipes, but he asked himself whether his ears had not been befooled, or if that was not the case, whether the music he had heard had not been played by a living man. He succeeded in persuading his host to go to bed, where he administered to him a sleeping draught, and the next morning, when Sir Archibald arose, he was much refreshed, although gloomy and despondent. A fortnight passed, and Dr. Staffler began to laugh at the fears he had allowed to take possession of him on that stormy night when he had heard the so-called Piper of Culloden. Jessie had not been told of the incident, and the young couple were very happy in their love. The doctor was proud of his affianced wife, and was never tired of praising her beauty. For beautiful she was, and to his eyes her beauty was without parallel. But while the young people were thus dreaming their dreams of future joy and happiness, Sir Archibald was filled with nervous anxiety, so that his haggard face had become still more haggard. He could not forget the warning. But what he hoped and prayed was that the warning might be meant for himself, not for his child. He was a worn man, to whom life had proved very bitter, and he would have no difficulty in yielding it up. 
but it was torture to him to think that his idolized child was doomed. She was so beautiful, so full of health and hope, and so supremely happy at the prospect of becoming the wife of the man she worshipped. It wanted now but three weeks to the marriage, which was to take place in London, and the doctor, Sir Archibald, and his daughter were to leave for the South in the course of a few days. Jessie was in high spirits and busy with preparations for her departure from her home and for her marriage. Once again the doctor and his host were alone in the library. It was a beautiful night, calm, cold, and clear. The stars in frosty splendor burned, and a nearly full moon silvered the sleeping sea. Sir Archibald drew back the curtain from the window in order that the doctor might gaze upon the superb scene that, while beautiful, looked almost unearthly under the moonlight. Suddenly there arose on the gentle air that came in from the sea the sound of bagpipes, not a fierce pibroch this time, but a low, plaintive, melancholy wail that seemed to be softened and subdued by distance. So faint were the sounds. Sir Archibald let the curtain fall, and staggering backwards to his chair, he gasped, The pipes! The pipes! The curse is still on us! The doctor tried to soothe him, saying, Really, sir, I think you should not let this matter affect you so much. Sir Archibald turned his eyes upon the doctor, with a look of despair and reproach, but he made no response. Then he sank back in his chair, and seemed to be wrapped in gloomy thought. The doctor took down a book, and seating himself began to read, although he found that he could not concentrate his mind upon the page, but his thoughts would wander to the strange story his host had told him about the Piper of Culloden. Presently, Jessie came into the room. She was looking a little pale, and her lover's perception and anxiety being quickened by what he had heard, he asked, are you not well, Jess? Oh, yes, dear. Well, that is, I have been suffering from a slight headache, she answered with a smile. Oh, I will soon give you something to relieve that, said the doctor, rising from his seat. I have already taken something, she answered, laying her soft white hand on his. Have you? What have you taken? Well, your little medicine case that you were showing me the other day, was on the dining-room sideboard, and I helped myself to some sal volatile. "'And has it done you good?' asked the doctor. "'Not yet. There has hardly been time.' The doctor drew a chair near the fire for her, and seating himself beside her, began to discuss the merits of certain musical composers, for they were both very fond of music. And while he talked, she grew paler, and seemed to become abstracted, and presently she said faintly, Roland, I feel very queer. There's something the matter with me. With those words, Sir Archibald uttered a cry of woe and swooned away. The servants were summoned, and he was put to bed, and in wild alarm the doctor plied his sweetheart with questions as to her symptoms. I have a strange numbness of the lips, she answered, and I feel pain. That statement made him turn giddy and almost real, for the distinct and characteristic symptom, numbness of the lips, pointed to poisoning with aconite, 
of which he knew he had a small file in his case. He rushed into the dining room, examined the case, and found that the aconite bottle was half empty. By mistake, the poor girl had taken the poison for the sal volatile. Gradually, she grew worse, and servants were started off post-haste to obtain the services of other doctors. And all through that dreadful night, Roland Staffler, almost distracted with grief, did everything that human skill and science could suggest, in conjunction with colleagues from far and near, but all was of no avail. The dreadful poison had got too firm a hold, and as the eastern light of morn spread itself over the still sleeping sea, the beautiful Jessie Linning, in a fit of wild delirium, passed into the land of shadows. Crushed into the very dust with an unutterable sorrow, the poor young doctor bowed his head over the body of her he had loved so well, and felt that henceforth his life must be a broken life, a life of gloom. He had at first brought joy and peace and happiness to that accursed place, but now, alas, through inadvertence, he had taken peace and joy and happiness away, in a different sense from what he had hoped for. Sir Archibald Linning never recovered from the blow, but three months afterwards he followed his daughter to the grave, and the night before he died, the wailing music of the pipes of the Piper of Culloden came breathing over the sea. The curse has been truly fulfilled. The last of the Linnings is extinct. Drumsley Castle has fallen into a roofless ruin. The owl hoots through its silent chambers, and the ravens build their nests in the adjoining trees. Roland Staffler has gained eminence in his profession, and his name is known far and wide as a scientific man. But since that fatal night when Jessie Linning, his affianced bride, was poisoned at Drumsley Castle, he has never been known to smile. His life has indeed been a broken life, through that curse uttered long ago by the dying piper of Culloden. End of Story 5 Recording by Mark Losacco